I remember when, when Sherry used to come by my office when she was on staff here and we would dream together. And she said, I'm just not, I don't think I'm adequate for this. And I said, nope, you're not. None of us are adequate, but it's God's work and he's put it on your heart. So he's gonna do it through you and he has. Well, how are you doing community of faith? All right, that's pretty good. Now, some of you at home, you need to be there. I know that. But some of you I saw at the sixth game of the World Series on TV. And you were squished in between all these other people and get back up here to church, right? We're going to fill this place up again. And let me tell you something. I promise the ending will be better than the sixth game of the World Series was for you. Um, And maybe free furniture. I don't know, but no. I want to talk to you about purpose, finding my why. I feel like that uh, many Americans find themselves with this gnawing sense of, it's, it's like a slight dissatisfaction, kind of tickles in the back of your brain, you know, that is this all there is? Is this what it's about? And I think that in order to combat that, we have to find our why. A lot of us are really good at living out our what, you know, I'm a businessman or I'm a mom and uh, our how, well, I go to work, I commute downtown every weekday to my office and do great work or I'm mom shuttling the kids to soccer and baseball and uh, ballet and football and all these different things. But we've never discovered our why, our reason to wake up in the morning. And as we're trying to figure that out, we're living a life that's like, I, I don't know. I, am I doing the right things? Am I in the right place? You know, there's a legend in Silicon Valley. I think it's a true story, but it's the story of uh, Steve Jobs. When um, Apple was first trying to get off the ground, they had struggled and they were a, a, a new company. They'd grown like crazy, but they were disorganized. And so he, knew he needed to find a great CEO. So he was chairman of the board and he went to New York City to talk to John Scully, who at that time was the CEO of PepsiCo, of the Pepsi company. And uh, just supposed to be an amazing CEO. So he, he was talking to John and he said, you know, what does it take to get you to be the CEO? He named this exorbitant salary and Jobs just kind of gulped and said, done. But then he said, we need you to move to California. And Scully backed out. He said, I'm a New York guy. I live here. And maybe I'll just do consulting for you. And as the legend goes, Jobs at that point said, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want to change the world? And that impacted John Scully in a powerful way. In fact, it reset the course of his life and set up a a why for him to get up in the morning. I think God in the passage that we're going to look at this morning is trying to do the same thing for us to, to rock our world, our little insular world a little bit. And to find your why, we've got to find our context in the story. Where do you fit in the story? Some of you go, well, I'm the center of the story, right? I mean, just look at my Instagram and my Facebook and, and all of that. But no, uh, I, I don't mean this harshly, but 
if you're the center of the story, that would be a pathetically small little story. God has something more for you. Moses, in the oldest psalm in the book of Psalms, it was written way before David wrote any of his, in Psalm chapter 90, he's giving us some context for our lives. He wants to help us find our why. And so he, he knows that understanding my context helps me understand my purpose. And that if I don't get the context, without context, I miss the point, or even worse, maybe I think I am the point. And so this is a prayer of Moses, but it's also a prayer for you this morning that he would have for you to find where do you fit in the story so that you can find your why, your purpose, the gift of purpose that he wants to give us. Let me just read some of it for you. Psalm 90, Lord, you have always been our eternal home, our hiding place from generation to generation. Long before you gave birth to the earth and before the mountains were born, you have been from everlasting to everlasting, the one and only true God. In the original Hebrew, everlasting to everlasting, from vanishing point in the past, to vanishing point in the future, you are God. God is our context, the eternal one, the everlasting to everlasting. Verse three, when you speak the words, life, return to me, man turns back to dust. 1,000 years pass before your eyes like yesterday that quickly faded away, like a, a night's sleep soon forgotten. One day we will each be swept away into the sleep of death. We glide along through the tides of time so quickly gone like a dream that fades at dawn, like glistening grass that springs up one day and is dry and withered the next, ready to be cut down. Our days soon become years until our lifetimes come to an end, finished with nothing but a sigh. You've limited our lifespan to a mere 70 years. Some you give grace to live a little longer, but even the best of our years are marred by tears and toils, and in the end are nothing more than a gravestone in a graveyard. We're gone so quickly, so swiftly, we pass away and simply disappear. Now you're going, Moses, uh, is this an encouraging prayer for me, or what is this exactly? And I know it can seem like, oh, wow, that's kind of a downer, but as we begin to find our context, it becomes anything but that. See, the truth that Moses is trying to get across to us is that we're not here long enough to be the center of the story. We're not one of the main characters in the movie. And that's not depressing. That's the broader context for your life. This is what gives your life purpose. David Needham says this, Man was created to be God's ultimate spiritual masterpiece, created clean as a flawless prism or, or diamond made to receive and then display the otherwise invisible glories of the infinite God into limitless visible colors so that all creation might see God. I like that. We've got to realize what God intended for us in order to live the purpose God intends for us. You, you know the story of Adam and Eve. 
they were the ultimate creations of God at very the sixth day. And I don't know if they were literal days or billions of years in between each one. It doesn't matter. It's what it's saying about God. It's like time is like just nothing to him. If you've lived from forever past and you're always going to be there forever future. But he created Adam and Eve and he created them in his image. And they were image bearers of God. And he said, I want you to rule this planet. It says really clearly, God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over this planet. And he meant it. He wasn't kidding. Just an aside, people ask me all the time, like, if God is so good, Mark, then why is there so much evil in the world? It's because God gave us dominion. We fell on our face. We sinned. And that has just become a giant snowball of sin down through the years. And God said, you're in charge. He doesn't step over us. He never steps over our free will. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's what he promised. But he does step in in many ways, and we see grace so much of the time. So he's given us dominion. And Adam and Eve, here they are, the new king and queen of the planet. They're walking in the Garden of Eden, and it's, it's beautiful. It's a paradise. And then the Bible says there was one tree that God said, don't eat of this tree. You can eat of this tree of life. You can eat of every other tree in the garden, but don't eat of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And so Eve is kind of hanging around by the tree one day, a little too close probably, looking at the fruit on the tree. And it says that Satan came in the form of a serpent. The serpent was the most beautiful creation except for mankind uh, of the day. And I don't know if it was more like a dragon or what it used to be like, but, um, you know, we get all these concepts of dragons and all these kind of things. But, um, you know, a serpent today, we're looking at it like, that's, you know, that rattlesnake is not beautiful, right? And I think I'll take a couple of steps back. But this was a a beautiful creature and it began to speak. And I I guess if you're Eve and everything's new and a creature begins to speak to you, you're not going to be freaked out because you don't know what they can do anyway, right? But so here's the serpent and the serpent, what does he say to the woman? Did God say, I like to do the S's as a serpent, right? Did, Did God say not to eat from that tree? Why would he say that to you? And she says, well, he says, because the day that we eat of it, we're going to die. And the serpent says, you won't die. God's just scared. He knows that you will become like him. And he doesn't want any competition. Now, it's so interesting because the word used all through this and in the Psalms too, that when it, when it talks about God is the word Elohim. Elohim, Elohim knows. Elohim means the strong one, the strong one. And it's so interesting because I think that's how you would know God, what you would name him. If you knew him as one of the first men and women, you'd be going like, he's the creator. He put all this together. He's the strong one. He is the strongest one. So what did they do? They wanted to be like God. So they ate of the tree and what God said came to pass. They died. They didn't die physically. 
but that part of them on the inside that was meant to reflect the glory of God, the real life, the spiritual life died in that moment. And that was called the fall. And all of us since then have fallen. We've sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory, it says. It says in the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would be Elohim. And so that shows that what God says always comes to pass. But what's so interesting is that what Satan said to them also became true. They became their own Elohim, their own strong one. See, this is how Satan lies to us. He's so smart. He's so much smarter than us. He doesn't just tell us blatant lies. We'd go, that's not right. He tells us truth twisted. You'll become like God. You will become your own God. And we did. We became our own Elohim, our own strong one. Now, nothing like the one that they knew and loved. That Elohim, that God, he's life. Life generates from within him. All moral law generates from within God. He is his own law. He is his own life. Man, when we were separated from God, we became our own law. In fact, it says all through the Old Testament, there's a little phrase in so many chapters in the Old Testament, every time that mankind would fall away from God, which was often, it says this, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I think if you were going to say, what do you think people in America do? I mean, how do they decide morality? That would be it, wouldn't it? They did what was right in their own eyes because we've become our own law, our own Elohim. And unfortunately, there's no life in us apart from God's breath. So we became our own really perversion of Elohim, a weak, selfish, self-centered, sinful Elohim, reflecting basically only our own pathetic, small, self-serving, pathetic perversion of God. I want you to think about human life for a moment. Think about human life in all of its glory. Start out as a baby. Oh, it's so cool to have a baby, isn't it? You know, Laura did that three times. Three times she had a baby, and, and it was just so amazing to hold those little ones. I remember with David, she was 18 hours in labor. Almost killed me. And, um, you know, it wasn't long after we had David that she said, you want to have another one? I'm like, are you crazy? Don't you remember? It almost killed me, you know? But we did. We had little Sarah and then little Ashley. And each time, I mean, oh, you know, and it's like you want to go, I'm down there, whatever you do, you know? Holding the baby up, Simba, you know? And, and, and it's just so cool, you know? And, and, and then forward, flash forward a couple of years, you got the chubby little two-year-old and it looks like their hands and their feet are screwed on. Don't you love that? I love that. We had, all three of ours were like little Michelin tire babies, you know? And it just looked like, oh, you just look at your little hands. You're just screwed on, right? God screwed your hands on. I love that, you know? Flash forward another couple of years and they're hanging upside down on the swing set, all freckles and vitality and life, you know, and energy, bright eyes. Flash forward another 12 or 15 years, you're at the pinnacle of life. 19, 20, 21 years old. 
beautiful as a man, handsome as a woman. No, wait, beautiful as a woman, handsome as a man. And if you're here today and you're 20 or 21, you're as good looking as you're ever going to get. I mean, that's it, baby. So enjoy this moment, all right? Your eyes are expectant, looking into the future. What comes next? Well, long years of work, stress, disappointment, betrayal and ulcers and sorrow and stretch marks, sorry, ladies, impotence, incontinence, hearing aids, nursing home. Ever heard anyone in the nursing? I've just never heard of anyone in the nursing home crawling out of the bed, standing up and go, I am my own Elohim, you know? because it's not like that anymore. It just continues on. And is that all there is? I mean, relationships that don't pan out exactly like we expected, then the hospital bed, the last gasp, the box, the ultimate offense to this Elohim, the grave, because this strong one has no life in himself. Is that all there is? What's it all about? What's the story? We've built the story around ourselves and it's such a small story, such a tiny, pathetic little story. But if you hear God all the way back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell on their face, they hid from him. They were afraid. They were naked. They realized they were naked and they, and they, they hid from him. And I, I can just imagine if you, you remember some of you who are, my age, you know, I used to watch those old Charlie Brown cartoons and stuff, and he would hide behind a tree, you remember? And his head sticking out, his head is so huge, sticking out on both sides. I think that's probably what Adam and Eve were kind of doing, you know? God knew right where they were, but he kept walking through the garden, and he said, Adam, where are you? He was seeking him already. He still loved him, even when he had fallen on his face. You see, Our fall didn't catch the great Elohim off guard. Our father had a plan. He had it all along because he knew what was going to happen. It was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before it even happens. Listen, in Isaiah 53, 5, it says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our perversions. Talking about Jesus, of course. But that word perversion, it signifies how we perverted the creation of God to become our own Elohim. From what God intended for us to be, we perverted it. God is the only true Elohim, strong one. Now he invites us to walk hand in hand with him. But you know, when I feel his hand holding mine, it's like I'm aware that he's touching me ever so lightly, lest I be crushed like the butterfly in his hand. And he's holding us so gently because he is truly Elohim. Moses goes on in verse 11, Lord, who fully knows the power of your passion, the intensity of your emotions. So teach us to number our days that we may cultivate and bring to you a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying, If we could see clearly, we would live more purposefully, but we can't. So we must be taught. Teach us, 
to number our days. Teach. It doesn't come naturally. It's so interesting because we are our own Elohim. We tend to live as if we had endless days. What happens when you think you have an endless supply of something? You waste it. And we tend to waste our days thinking that we have endless days. Teach us to number our days. Remember, our days are numbered. It's short. It's quick. It's like, he said, it's like a breath. It's like a a moment. Students number their days before the exam. How long do I have? I got to study. I got, you know, brides before the wedding. Grooms, they don't, not so much, but brides, yeah, you know. Oh, it's this many days and this is what I have to do. What about before the baby is born? We number and we prepare. It's interesting, the word cultivate, it's an agricultural idea. We cultivate. By numbering our days, we cultivate something, and then we reap wisdom. We reap a heart of wisdom. Wisdom comes from remembering that our days are numbered, that life is short. There's a broader context, a bigger story, and we're just a tiny part of it. It's not my story. It's his Story. Maybe that's why we call it history. I don't know. But his story, right? The story is not about you. You only have a bit part. But listen, here's the amazing thing Elohim is offering you a front row seat for a few years to his story and his glory. Listen to verse 16 and 17. Moses says, Let us see your miracles again. Let our children see glorious things, the kind you used to do. Let your favor, Lord our God, rest on us. Make the work of our hands last. Make the work of our hands last. You're not gonna last, but the work of your hands can last. If you want to have purpose, You must join a greater cause. You must be involved in something bigger than the little story that revolves around you. And what he says is, I want to give you a front row seat to my story. If you'll step into my story. And not only that, your children, your children, even in a culture like this, where so many kids are already saying, At age 10, 11, 12, I think I'm an atheist or an agnostic. Secular humanism has done its work. But even in this culture, when you step into his story, your children see his glory. And what happens when you see God's glory pull out? You don't go, wow, what cool parents. What a great preacher. The Bible says when they saw his glory, every time all they could do is fall on their face and say, the Lord. He is God. Don't you want that for your kids? Don't you long for that? Paul, talking about a greater purpose, he kind of puts it in the form of a soldier. I thought it was appropriate today as we celebrate you, our veterans, that, that we use 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Listen to what Paul says. He says, overcome every form of evil as a victorious Soldier of Jesus, the anointed one. 
every soldier called to active duty must divorce himself from the distractions of this world so that he may fully satisfy the one who chose him. What happens when you divorce? What happens when you divorce? You put some distance between. You spend a lot less time with. Some of you are going, thank God. You only interact when necessary. Maybe you form a new relationship. You see, it's the idea of a soldier versus a a civilian. I kind of think of it like NATO's peacekeeping forces around the globe. You know, in so many troubled places around the globe, NATO has put in peacekeepers and it's a group, you know, they might be French, American, you know, all these different nationalities, but they're together as a peacekeeping force. Well, they look different. They act different. They're on a different kind of alert than just the regular citizen walking around. We, the church, the church are God's enlisted ones, God's army to bring his will, his justice, his love to bear on this prodigal planet that's gotten so far away from his image and from who he is to help people around the globe to know the true Elohim. You know, one of the reasons that we built this place so simply and at a cost that was unheard of when we built this place, and some of you, you curse my name every time you have to climb to the top of those stairs. Where's the elevator and the stairs in the back, right? That would have cost us $2 million more. We could have done it. They had plans for it. But I told them, I said, we want to send that out. We want to get that out. We don't want to spend it on ourselves. You know, some churches, they're built kind of like a cruise ship and you got everything in there, you know? Everything you could ever want. We're more like a battleship because we're going into battle and we're going to make a difference around the globe. Some of you are going, I can't believe we have to pay for these stupid donuts. They used to be free one back in the day. That was till they started costing us $100,000 for donuts. Did you know we paid $100,000 as a church for donuts before we started making you pay for them? We were the fastest growing church by pure poundage in the United States. But here's the deal. <laughs> I said, one day, you know, we're spending $100,000 on this, but we need to, the orphanage that we built in Costa Rica before we ever built a building. That, that orphanage, we need to support that more and, and we're gonna take that money and use it for that. So you need to pay for your donuts. And some of you are going like, oh, you got me on that one. You know, I was gonna whine and complain about it. But you know, how can I say, I'm gonna eat a free donut, let the orphans, whatever, you know? So, that's who we are. When Laura and I came back from Mexico, we'd been in Mexico City and the Yucatan and we'd served there as missionaries for some years. And when we came back to Houston, we were kind of at a loss about what we wanted to do. We were thinking about having a little mission agency or something. We went around to churches and just couldn't get, it was crazy. We couldn't get a lot of interest. Churches talk about what they're doing around the globe, but it's like a little tiny bit here and there. And I, I, I went to all these big churches because I thought, Big churches can make a big difference. And I talked about 
the orphanage in Costa Rica that we could build for $200,000. And I couldn't get any interest, you know, because they said, well, we support orphanages. I said, yeah, but that's like $3,000 a year, you know. And then God put on our heart, build a church that gets it. Build a church that that's, they, they, they understand what this is about. And so we started Community of Faith. Before we ever built that first building, we built that orphanage. We were going to make a statement. We did. And, you know, one of the coolest things is what a church like ours can do. You see it in India with Sherry, and it's been so amazing. But one of the coolest things is working with the Batwa people of Burundi. Burundi is the poorest country basically on the planet, poorer than Haiti. And it's right next to Rwanda. And I'll never forget when I first met the Batwa people. I was in Rwanda, in Kigali, Rwanda for a, a conference. My son, David, my daughter, Sarah was with me. And we were meeting with a bunch of African entrepreneurs, some of the sharpest guys in the continent and talking about ways to do business together, do church together, make a difference together. The guy who led the conference, his name was Claude Nikondeha, and he was, he was a Burundian. He was so cool. He was so amazing. I've never met anyone entrepreneurial as he is. And, and he said to me, to David, to Sarah, he said, would you like to go visit my country? It's right next door. They had the genocide of the 90s in Burundi too but it didn't get the media attention. It was so poor. And so they didn't get any of the international money that Rwanda got from that or the peacekeepers or any of that stuff. And so he said, would you like to? And we said, well, sure. And he goes, you know what I would like to do if, if you would permit me, I would like to take you to go visit the Batwa. They are the little ones. They are the tribe that everyone, he said, honestly, I've never met a Batwa person. And I live in Burundi. He was Tutsi, Hutu and Tutsi were the other two tribes. I think I have a picture of me with one of the Batwa uh, chieftains right there. They are the little people. They used to be called the pygmies. And they, they're so discriminated against. We drove and we were on this road. And I remember the driver, uh, we, we crossed into Burundi. It looks kind of like Dominican Republic versus Haiti. You know, you cross that line and there was like a wasteland. And we're driving and we get further and further out and he's going like a hundred miles an hour down this tiny little road. And I said, man, slow down. I got my whole family back here in the back seat. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor Mark. It was just that um, the insurgents and the government, they were shooting back and forth across this road last night. And I said, speed up, man, what are you doing? And we went way out in the middle of nowhere to this dusty hill. And the Batwa were there on a pile of dust, basically. And they started singing as we pulled up. They saw us and they started singing. And I didn't know what they're singing. I couldn't understand Kurundi, but they were singing about us. They were saying, visitors have come. Visitors, no one ever comes. Visitors have come. Claude had never even seen a Batwa. And he lived there all his life. And I realized these guys are in difficult circumstances. I found out that they were making about $100 a year a piece. Can you imagine? Like the women would fire these pots. Uh, and it took them three days to build the pot. They would fire it in the fire. They would walk two hours into town and sell it for a quarter. 
the men would go into town and try to find work. And they would work all day, 10, 12 hours. And then at the end, because they weren't registered with the government, no one even thought of them as people. At the end of the day, many times they'd say, here's a quarter or I'm not even going to pay you. What are you going to do about it? So unjust. And I remember talking to the chief of the village. There were about 3,000 people there. I saw one little plantain among all of them. That was it. That this little girl was cooking in a pot. Claude told me they, the whole group of them hadn't eaten in three weeks. You can imagine the kids with their little distended bellies. And as I'm talking to the chief and I ask him what his name is and he speaks back and Claude's translating and Claude's there. He's got his Ray-Bans on. He looks super cool. And all of a sudden I see this big old tear come out of underneath Claude's Ray-Bans. He said, he said his name is no name, chief no name. His parents told him, you're Batwa. You won't amount to anything. It would have been better if you never lived. We will call you nothing. No name. And Chief No Name said, the world has forgotten us. God has forgotten us. We are the forgotten people. A thousand years out here in the dust. Everyone has forgotten us. I realize no government agency, no other church, nobody's working with these people. 80,000 of them in the Congo and in Burundi. And I told him, said, God hasn't forgotten you. The Bible says in Isaiah that he's inscribed you on the palms of his hands. He's even given you a name. You're not no name to him. And I said, and there's a little church in Cyprus that won't forget you either. I didn't say Hockley because I didn't think he would know where Hockley was. He didn't even know where Texas was. And you haven't forgotten me. That was 2008. We've walked in business with them. We've walked in friendship with them. We've just started in Bujumbura, the capital city, and in those areas where the Batwa are, our 200,000th job. They're giving jobs to the Hutus and the Tutsis. They've risen up, and, and now they're, the government recognizes them. They just put the first Batwa on the government's council that's ever been on there. And things are changing for them. You know, we haven't lost but one child in the last 10 years. And only two out of 10 were living to age five before that. They wouldn't even name them till they were five years old. We have a bank that's giving out hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in loans. We have a porridge factory that's feeding 55 thousand kids a day enriched porridge they just did a big government study on it and found if they got two meals of that a day after a year they looked as healthy as if they were eating in a, you know better than an american diet God has done so many things so many things guess who's working with us now with the batwa nobody You've done all of that. Why? Because God says, you're my army. You're my hands and my feet. He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates, the very gates of hell will not stand against it. 
I love who you are. I love who we are together. I love what God is doing through us. You know, Lauren Daigle sings a song. I asked Samantha to sing it as we close. It's called Rescue. And in that song, it says, I hear you whisper underneath your breath. I hear you say, I have nothing left, but I haven't forgotten you. I will send out an army to find you. In the darkest, darkest place, I will send out an army. Now, I know there's a heavenly army that he sends, but we are his hands and we are his feet. The first little baby born on the beautiful land that they bought themselves. Three rivers coming together, so fertile. They named her Iribuka. I said, what does that mean? God remembers. God remembers. So the little girls in the brothels in India, darkest place, God sends out an army. I hear you say you have nothing left. To the Batwa and to the ones that are living on that garbage dump now that we're getting to this year. They make their living on the garbage dump of the poorest country on the planet. Can you imagine? Now they're getting two meals a day, porridge. We started a school there. You know what else they've done? We didn't even ask them to. They've started a bunch of churches. They said, we want to be like you. We didn't come and try to get notches. Like, oh, you know, you need to go through all these things, be a Christian and do these we just said, we love you. We care about you. And they kept saying, why would you come to us? We couldn't help but share our story. And now they've started a little community of faith everywhere. Most amazing thing. Maybe you're here. You're looking for the why. You're the why. Church is the why. If we're really the church. Let me tell you something else. Maybe you're here and you feel like that. I, I've got nothing left. Here for you too. We're here for your neighbors in that affluent house who if you could see inside of there, oh yeah, they look good on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I got nothing left. I've got nothing left. He hears you. He hears us. Listen as Samantha sings this song. Let God apply it to your heart, but don't forget, you're the army. You're the army. All the places that we're going around the globe, you'll see pictures. You are not hidden. There's never been a moment you were forgotten. You are not hopeless, but you have been broken. Your innocence stolen. I hear you whisper underneath your breath. I hear your SOS. Your SOS And 
send out an army and find you in the middle of the darkest night. It's true, I will rescue you. There is no distance that cannot be covered over and over. You're not defenseless. I'll be your shelter, I'll be your armor I hear you whisper underneath your breath I hear your SOS, your SOS And I will send down Close your eyes. Elohim, you are the strong one. We bow to you right now. We bow to your power, to your strength, to your compassion, to your grace, to your love. We see you on the cross, Elohim, dying for us. We don't understand why you would do that for such as us. We bow our knees before you and we tell you, we're in, we're in. We don't live very long. It's just a moment, it's just a breath, but we want to have a front row seat to what you're doing. We want our children to say the Lord, he is God, he is Elohim. The Lord is good. God, I know it's according to your will that we impact this prodigal, prodigal planet that's fallen so far from you, that we give them a taste of the kingdom of heaven now. So I say, come kingdom of God upon us. 
be done will of God over us and let nothing stop what you want to do through even the most fragile things. Because you are so strong, breathe your life into us. We will obey. Jesus, in your precious name, amen. So what do you do? Say, I'm in, and then do the next right thing. I love you, community of faith. We'll see you next week.